Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org. Um, in full disclosure, I feel a little, a little bit like a zebra and a pack of wild racehorses. And the reason being is that I'm actually a writer, not a preacher. And we writers, we're safer. You can sit down. We writers feel much safer sitting behind a computer somewhere up in the mountains where we can tell our stories through the written word. But it seems like since I've been in Zimbabwe, since the end of February, on a journey that's been absolutely extraordinary, God has pushed me out of my comfort zone and told me to tell my story because my story is actually your story. As a matter of fact, I'm the keeper of your story. And you're going to have to forgive me if I get emotional because it's a very intense story. But my story actually starts out many years ago in the city of Milwaukee where I was born into a Roman Catholic family back in a time when church wasn't done in English, it was done in Latin. So I spent most of my childhood staring up at pictures on the ceiling because I had no idea what anybody was saying. But there was one story that grabbed my heart, and it was the story of a, a guy they called a Good Samaritan. And the reason that that story got in my heart was I just found it extraordinary that this man had compassion on somebody he didn't even know. But little did I understand that compassion was actually the least part of this story. It wasn't until years later that I would really begin to understand what God was trying to teach through that story. Fast forward a little bit. By the time I was 11 years old, it was 1968. For those of you that know American history, 1968 was a horrible year. In April... Dr. King got shot at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis. In June, Bobby Kennedy got killed at the Ambassador Hotel in California. And by August, our country was burning. The Democratic Convention in Chicago was violent. And in that moment, I said, you know, God, you don't exist. And I walked out of church and never went back because I got really disillusioned. As an 18-year-old, I found myself living in downtown Milwaukee, running as far away from God as I possibly could get. In the middle of the night, in the darkness, he called out to me. It scared the hell out of me. And when I mean the hell out of me, it scared the hell out of me. I had no grid for what was happening. So the next day, I told one of my friends, I said, I had this incredible experience. I don't know what happened, but it scared the heck out of me. And so I told him what happened, and he was like, man, give me some of that weed. And I said, no, brother, I wasn't smoking pot. This actually happened. And I said, I have no idea what's going on. And he goes, well, man, we got to talk to a pastor. So... He tells me he's got this friend that's a pastor, and off we go to talk to the pastor, and I tell the pastor exactly what happened the night before. 
he starts laughing. He goes, well, young man, you know what that means? You have a calling on your life. Well, for a kid who hadn't ever been in church and knew nothing about calling, the only thing that I knew of calling was is that I'd heard people call dogs and I heard people call cows and horses. What in heaven's name was God calling me? Like, what, what was he calling me? And he starts laughing and goes, oh, young man, that means you need to go in the ministry. Well, I got up and started walking out because from my perspective and what I had grown up thinking was guys in the ministry had to be celibate. <laughs> and I'm 18 years old and I have no interest in being celibate. And he goes, oh, sit down, young man. He goes, that's... On our side of the equation, you can be married. And I went, okay, that's good, that's good. And he goes, but it's obvious you really don't know anything about God. And I think the best thing for you is we need to send you to Bible school. And so off they sent me to Colorado. And I can remember this vividly on the very first day of, of class. We're sitting there and the professor says, we all need to turn to Luke 10. Well, I had no idea where Luke 10 was. So the kid next to me is looking over and he's seeing that I'm fumbling through my Bible and he's kind of indignant and flips open the page and it's, he goes, it's right there, idiot. And I look and it says, the Good Samaritan. And just out of innocence, I, I blurted out, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And of course, like you, everybody starts laughing. Well, what I discovered about Bible school was everybody that was there got sent there by their parents and really didn't want to be there. And I was the one kid who was there because I was so desperately hungry for God. Well, classes were in the morning and in the evening and in the afternoon, everybody that didn't want to be there left and I found myself at the school library all by myself reading my Bible for the very first time, getting to know Jesus. And something that I noticed about Jesus that really confused me was it seemed like he was constantly in conflict with his own culture. And I was perplexed by that. I, I'm, and one of the reasons I was perplexed by that is that we writers, when we tell a story... We build context into the story. We give you the background. We, we, we set the scenario up for you. Well, the interesting thing about the gospel writers is they just go straight to the point. They don't give you any context. And the reason for that is, is their, their audience already knows. They already understand the context. So I found myself in an intriguing situation going, well, I don't know what's going on here. I need, I need some history. So if you'll indulge me for a little bit, I'd like to tell you a little bit of the history of the situation that Jesus found himself in. Because I think in this story, you're going to find something very familiar about you as Zimbabweans in Jesus' time. And in order to understand what's going on, we need to go back a thousand years. All the way back to the time of the patriarchs. And all of you know that there was a guy named... Jacob, who had 12 sons. And one of Jacob's sons was a young guy by the name of Joseph. And if you know the story of Joseph, which I don't really have time to elaborate on, but Joseph 
found himself going backwards for a very long time. Until suddenly one day when he was at the bottom of everything and, and, and felt like God had left him, he went from prison to the palace in a 24-hour period and God used him to save a nation. Well, one of the things that's interesting about that story is every time it gets talked about, all you hear about is the fact that Joseph saved these 70 people, his family. What gets lost in the narrative and, and doesn't get discussed is the fact that Joseph also saved over a million Egyptians. And you know why? Because God loves the world. It wasn't just about those little 70. Well, how many of you know that as Joseph got older and got married, you know who he married? He married an Egyptian woman. And out of that relationship came two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now let me put this in the context of Africa. Because you guys have a terminology here that for mixed race people, you call them coloreds. What I find fascinating about it, at the very foundation of what God's doing with his people, he's got a mixed Two mixed-race tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what happens is over the course of time, these tribes grow. And we run into uh, the time of Moses, and we know that Moses basically gathers these 12 tribes, and they head out from Egypt, and they spend 40 years wandering in the desert. And as they're out there, the reason they're out there, of course, is they don't have faith. And God disciplines them, but they keep having amazing things happen, and, and, and they take these uh, objects from these amazing events. One of them, of course, would be the second edition of the Ten Commandments, and we have Aaron's rod that budded, and we have, um, you know, the manna, and all of this stuff is kept in a sacred box, which is then stored in a big tent that they call the tabernacle. And that travels with them all the way around, all their sacred stuff. And what happens is as, as we get to the time period where they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River and head in, who's leading them? Joshua. And you know what tribe Joshua's from? Ephraim. The colored guy is leading the troops. Fascinating. What happens is, though, is once they get on the other side of the river, what does Joshua do with the big tent and the box with all the sacred stuff? He puts it in his inheritance. He puts it in Ephraim, right? And for the next 400 years, all the other tribes have to come to Ephraim three times a year and pay homage to God. Well, 400 years later, the little shepherd boy from Judea. And that little shepherd boy becomes a military leader, and he decides that he's going to unify these 12 tribes and make a nation. But in order to be legitimate in that time period, there were two things that sort of determined that you were legitimate as a nation. And one was your king had a palace, and your god had a temple. So David decides he's built this palace, and now he wants to build this temple. And what does he do? 
He goes up to Ephraim and grabs the box with the sacred stuff, all their cultural relics, and he takes it away from them. And he brings it down to Judah. Do you think the people from Ephraim were happy about that? No. And what happens is, in David's zeal, he creates an offense that within three generations will split the whole country in half. By the time his grandson becomes king, the offense of the people from Ephraim in the north has become so intense that they split. And for the next thousand years, the northern part of the country and the southern part of the country are in conflict. They hate each other. The capital of the north is called Samaria, and so the people up there, they're called Samaritans. And the people in the south are the Judeans, and they don't like each other. In fact, they're competing because the Samaritans, they go back to where the tabernacle was, and they build their own temple. And they have their own priesthood. And they have their own Torah. And the two groups keep fighting each other over and over again about who's God's favorite. Well, about 63 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, another very interesting component comes into the mix. And it's the imperialists. The Romans. And these Europeans come from the West, and they're brutal. They rule with an iron sword, and they put down everyone. In fact, if they don't like you, or they think you're a little bit rebellious, they stick you on a cross on the roads coming into their cities to show everyone that if you disobey or you get out of line, that's what's going to happen to you. And they're oppressive. And suddenly we see, as Jesus comes on the scene, something that looks a lot like Zimbabwe. Because we've got the northern part of the country in conflict with the southern part of the country. They don't like each other. And neither of those two like the Romans. They don't like the imperialists. And the imperialists hate the other two groups. And in the fullness of time, God sends his son in the middle of that mess. He sends him to Zimbabwe. <laughs> well, what's interesting about the situation is how Jesus handles this mess. Because the truth of it is, he doesn't do anything like you or I would do it. And let me explain this. I'm going to put on my sociology hat here. All of us grow up in subcultures or cultures. You know, a subculture would be your family. Your culture would be your ethnicity. A subculture might be your experience at university. Your culture um, as, a, as a country would be, um, you know. And all of these subcultures and cultures have paradigms and perspectives that are handed down to us by the people that lead these little groups. We're all taught where to look, what to see, and how to interpret it. And if we want to stay in the group, we have to stay loyal to the paradigms and the perspectives. Because if we don't, we get kicked out. None of us 
want to be alone or isolated. So what we end up doing is we're all fall in line. Except for Jesus. He doesn't stick to the plan. Each one of these little pair, each of these little subcultures, they all think they're normal. Do you ever think about that? What you know, I always laugh when people use the word normal in a conversation. Like, what is normal? Well, the funny thing about normal is it always looks just like us. We think we're normal, and it's everybody else that's different, right? So what happens is, and I want to just point out three stories, because these three stories, I think, are revealing. First story, Jesus, in the midst of this huge conflict, heals the servant of a Roman centurion. Now think about this in 1970s Zimbabwe. Somebody here goes and heals the secretary of the commander of the Rhodesian forces. How would you have viewed that? I mean, this is way outside the box here. This is, I mean, you know, in fact, if this was in the southern part of the United States, all the mamas would look at each other and go, that boy ain't from around here. <laughs> I mean, think about this. I mean, in that cultural context of that time, he would be called a sellout. Right? You remember that word? Sellout, right? I mean, he is approaching this situation completely outside the paradigms and the perspectives of the culture. He is colliding head-on with normal. Second story. Jesus has a conversation with the enemy. He has a conversation in public with a Samaritan woman. I mean, he, and they have a conversation in public at a, at a well, right? I mean, you've got a single Jewish guy having a conversation with a woman who he's not supposed to be talking to in public. I mean, this is scandalous. I mean, this is tabloid kind of a, kind of a story. I mean, this is the stuff you see in the supermarkets. Single Jewish guys talking to this woman. But I got to give this woman credit because this woman asks the question. And it's the thousand-year-old conflict question, right? Because she goes right to the issue. Because they've been fighting over the, you know, to these, to this issue of is it in the north or is it in the south, right? Do we worship God over there in Mount Gerizim or do we worship God down there in Mount Moriah? I mean, they've been fighting is it this or that for a thousand years, right? And what is Jesus' answer? It's neither or. I mean, think about this. They've been fighting for a thousand years over an issue that from the God the Father's perspective is irrelevant. I'm going to say something here, and I, and I hope you hear my heart in this. Do you realize that most all of our conflict is about issues that when we die, we can't take with us? I mean, 
Have you ever thought about how absolutely insane this is? I mean, if we as God's people are supposed to be living in light of eternity, why are we fighting about things that don't matter? And the reason that we do, and I got to be careful here, but it's the truth. Is you know that there's a billion dollar industry out there of people who make lots of money over pitting uh, pitting us against each other? It just doesn't happen. There, Pastor Tom was talking about this morning. People driven by selfish ambition and greed. They make fortunes over us hating each other. They pit us against each other. That's how they stay in power. We as God's people need to be smarter than that. We need to start looking at things like Jesus looked at things. So let me tell you the third story because it's fascinating. And it's the story of my childhood. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now what makes this story so completely mind-boggling in the cultural context of the time is think about who's asking Jesus this question. It's one of his own tribesmen comes up to him and he asks him, he says, how can I inherit eternal life? Now for most of us, the way we've been raised, we think eternal life is something you get at an altar call. But from Jesus' perspective, eternal life was a life lived in light of eternity. It was living life as though you were looking at it from heaven's perspective. And as we've already just discovered, heaven's perspective is very different than ours. There's a great deal of confusion in the modern church because a lot of people think the church and the kingdom of God are the same thing and they're not. The truth of the matter is is that most of our churches are man-made institutions. It's how we think we should be worshiping God. But God has a very different perspective. And in this particular situation, what we find is, is this Judean legal expert comes to Jesus and he asks him how to, how he can get this eternal life. And Jesus asks him a question. He says, what's the greatest commandment? And he quotes Leviticus. And to summarize it, he says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And in this one verse... If you were in the business world, we call this the executive summary statement. Jesus, in one verse, summarizes the whole essence of Christianity. It's so simple. It's two things. Love God. Love your neighbor. Well, this Judean guy who thinks he's really smart tries to trip Jesus up, and he asks him a question. Well, who's my neighbor? You don't mess with Jesus. (laughs) Because Jesus comes right back with something that's so offensive to this guy in every which way you can imagine. And and there's another little truth I want to drop in here. And you need to understand this. It's really important. God offends our minds to reveal our hearts. Because the reality of it, God cares more about what's in here than anything else. What drives us? 
And so he tells them a story. Well, here's the problem. The hero of Jesus' story is this guy's political rival. The hero of this story is this Judean guy's social outcast. And to make it even worse, this hero of the story, this Samaritan man, is a heretic in this Jewish guy's in this Judean guy's mind. The hero of the story is all wrong in every which way you can imagine from this Judean guy's cultural mindset. And what we began to discover in the story is that what Jesus was driving at here is that what this Samaritan man did was he loved his enemy. Well, you can imagine as I'm beginning to discover this, I find myself really puzzled because as I'm going through the scriptures, I see Jesus talking about blessed are the peacemakers. He's telling stories about we're supposed to love our enemies. And I'm looking around at the Christian community and I'm going, oh my God, what happened to us? We're killing each other. In America, my brother knows this, the most segregated day of the week is Sunday. There's something terribly wrong with that. If we're God's people and we're looking at things like God looks at it, there's something terribly wrong with that. So, I find myself perplexed and depressed actually because I'm calling myself a Christian and I'm looking at this and I'm saying to myself... I don't see us loving our enemies. And for the next seven years, I went on a quest. And I kept asking God, God, is there anywhere in the world that people live like this? I mean, is there anyone that has a kingdom of God perspective who sees things like you do? Well, during that time, my best friend and I, uh, and I, or my best friend from Bible school and I, we actually planted a church in Kansas City. It was called Kansas City Fellowship, and today it's become the International House of Prayer. And here I am pastoring this church, and I'm conflicted. Because my church doesn't even look like this. And I'm struggling, and I'm going, God, something, something's not right. And I'm even more confused because I can't find it anywhere. And this is depressing. Well, in 1983, we had two Jewish guys come through our church. The church had just exploded. And I found myself in the course of the conversation, because when you talk with Jewish people, a lot of times the whole concept of the Holocaust comes up. I mean, this is a group of people that has really had to learn to forgive. And so I got to talking to them about this whole issue of peace, reconciliation. And I asked them a question. I said, I've spent the last seven or eight years looking for anywhere in the world where former enemies forgave each other, reconciled, and are living together like Jesus would have done it. And I can't find it. I'm depressed. And the two guys looked at each other and looked back at me and said the most amazing thing. We know exactly where you're supposed to go. It's in Zimbabwe. I was stunned. First of all, I'd never heard of Zimbabwe. Secondly, it wasn't in America. (laughs) 
oh my God, you know. Like, and so I said to them, I go, what are you talking about? And they said, no, we were just there a couple months ago and there's a group of former Rhodesian soldiers who, who, who were reading the, the same scriptures you were and they realized, you know what, this is all wrong. Something's very wrong here, even in our own churches. And they sold everything that they had and they bought land out next to a, a tribal trust area by the little village of Mbizingwe. And they moved out there and they sold everything. And they said, we're going out there and we're going to learn to forgive and reconcile and love and live like Jesus. And I said, I got to see that. And in February of 1984, I was on a plane here. And I couldn't, I couldn't sit still. I mean, when you've looked for something for so long like I did, I couldn't wait to get here. But there was this other side of me that kept, was skeptical, like, nah, this, this couldn't really be. Well, anyways, I landed here in February of 1984. You guys were in the middle of the fourth year of a seven-year drought. I remember driving from Bulawayo out into the bush, and the only thing that was green was the very top of trees. It was bad. There were military gunships going over the top of us. I didn't realize till I got down there that there was an armed conflict going on, and people were dying right, left, and center. I didn't know that's what I was coming into. And we drive over the cattle guard to this place they call New Adams Farm. And the name of the, that was the name of the farm, but the community was called the Community of Reconciliation. And I remember what, driving over that, and this place looked like the Garden of Eden. Everywhere we, we drove were beautiful uh, uh, vegetation and gardens and people growing f food. And I'm looking around, and there's black people and white people, like, living like that's normal. Like, living together and loving each other is normal. And I'm shocked because I've never seen anything like this before. It was, in my view, and, and, and this is my perspective, but what I saw there was the most pure and authentic version of Christianity I think I've ever seen. It was absolutely beautiful. And I sat there and we, I spent a month there. We talked, and, and what I learned is this wasn't easy. This was work. But they spent hours together talking, praying, asking forgiveness, working through the thing because they were committed to reconciling their nation. It was powerful, absolutely powerful. I watched people's lives being transformed. A whole group of people who were suffering from drought were suddenly now building businesses, had agriculture every which way. They were carrying huge baskets of food at home at night. There were times when we were sheltering people who were running from the military because their lives were being threatened. I mean, it was an intense situation, but in the middle of this drought, in the middle of this terrible genocide that was going on in the southern part of the country was this beautiful little light, this kingdom of God expression. 
And it was you. It was you. And, and I know this is going to sound strange to you, and I'm going to get a little emotional about this. But you're so used to Americans coming here to, because they're on a mission to save Africa. You know why God sent me here? For you to save me. Because what I saw here was, in my view, profound. It was everything that I believed was in Jesus' heart. And it was here. It was here. Well, I went back to Kansas City and sent families over and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. We bought more land. It was amazing. The whole thing was actually in a trust. And the reason we put it in a trust was is that everybody had equal ownership of it. Everything was shared in common. It was just like the early church. And we built dams because water's life. And we saved the lives of tens of thousands of people in the middle of a very dark period in your history. Well, I wish I could tell you that that place still exists. But it doesn't. On Thanksgiving in 1987, I'm sitting at my mother-in-law's house. I just put a plate of food on my lap, and I get a phone call. And in that phone call, I hear the news that 16 of my friends had gotten massacred on the project the night before. And I just sat there in shock. It was devastating. I was completely confused. Absolutely, utterly confused. So I'm 30 years old, and I've got to get on an airplane, and I've got to come here. And when I get here, I find out not only did my 16 friends get killed, they burned the whole thing to the ground. So not only did 16 white people get massacred in front of their their black brothers and sisters, all of my black Zimbabwean friends lost their businesses. It was devastating. I had no idea what to do with it. I didn't know what, I had no idea what was going on. And for any of you, I know there's people here that understand this. I saw things. Well, I got, let's put it this way. I got shoved into a room where I had to view the 16 bodies of my friends who had been hacked with axes and machetes. That's something nobody wants to ever see. There's people in this room. I know it because I felt it. And I've talked to some of you. You've been through this. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about the slideshow. There are images that you cannot get out of your head. Well, anyways, what ended up happening was is that, thank you. Sorry, I, I don't try not to get emotional, but you can't help it when you're talking about a story like this. Anyways, what ended up happening was is that the people that killed my friends told everybody in the area that if you ever come back on this land, we'll kill you. Well, it took a long time to process 
their bodies. So it was about 10 days after they got killed that we decided to bury them. And just out of defiance, we decided to bury them on the very land that they got killed. Well, there was only 12 of us that had the courage to go back out there. And so it was a day, it was a very sunny day. It was hot. We were standing around this um, gravesite. And we're laying the different, the remains of all the different people in there. I hear this singing. And I'm like, because this is a valley. And I look, and there are hundreds of villagers coming up the hill, singing. And I start weeping because I realize that these people were defying those that had told them that they would kill them. And I was so completely blown away that they had the courage to do that. And what ended up happening is was we ended up having this amazing burial service. As we were just fitting, finishing putting concrete down, I felt this coldness in the back of my neck. And I look up and there's this cloud and it's pitch black. And all of a sudden, all heaven opens up and it just starts pouring rain. Now, we're in the seventh year of a seven-year drought, and all of a sudden, and I remember somebody grabbing me and said, we got to get out of here fast, and we get in these cars, and we're driving. I lay in bed all night long listening to the rain on the tiles. The next morning at breakfast, somebody says, we need to go and see what happened, because I think maybe their graves all washed away, and so we get in the car, and we go back out there, and we get there, and as we pull in, all the villagers come running up the hill and going, Mr. Bob, Mr. Bob, you got to come see. God wept all night long, and the trees were drowning, and we want to show you something. Well, what had happened was, is that six weeks before they died, we had completed a 30-foot-high concrete dam. Because remember, water's life. Or, yeah, water's life. Well, as I went down there, that dam was just running over with water. And one night, this huge lake developed. And I just started crying. I mean, it was a very emotional moment, you know. Well, anyways, I wish I could tell you this story gets better, but it doesn't. Because what happens is, is I have to go back home. Well, when I get home... First thing that I get greeted with is people pointing at me going, their blood's on your hands. You're the one that got them killed. I had to learn the hard way that sometimes people don't know what to, how to deal with pain. And first thing they got to do is they got to point fingers. And so I found myself suddenly having to deal with the fact that what if it was my fault? But then the second thing that happened was, is nobody in America wanted to hear the story about people dying. And so I found myself all alone carrying a story, a profound story about something beautiful and holy that happened here. But nobody wanted to hear it in America. Well, not only that, on this side of the pond, the government was so paranoid of this story getting out that they told the, the international news media that 16 missionaries from somewhere else got killed. But the truth of the matter was that that wasn't true. There was only three people that died that weren't from here. Everybody else was born and raised here. These were your neighbors. 
And then they tried to tell everyone that it was an imperialist farm, that it was somehow owned by some wealthy white farmer, which wasn't true as, as well. And so they tried to bury the story. And they tried to tell me that when I tried to talk to people about it, they told me that I was lying, that I was exaggerating, that I wasn't telling the truth. Everybody was scared of this story. Well, what ends up happening is, is I just went into a shell. I spent the next 20 years of my life not talking about it. Nobody in America wanted to hear about it, and everybody over here was telling me I was a liar. In 2007, I met a, a man. I was telling him a little bit about my life story, and he began to explain to me that I actually had post-traumatic shock disorder. And I didn't really understand what it was, but over the course of time, he began to explain it to me. And I began to real, and he began to tell me something. He said, in order for you to heal, Bob, you're going to have to tell your story. Because the only way to heal is you've got to tell your story. Well, after a year of wrestling with it, all of a sudden one night I hear these words, Bob, don't let your friend's blood have been shed in vain. And I sat down and I wrote a book. It took me a year to write it, but the book is in the bookstore, and it's called Saving Zimbabwe, Life, Death, and Hope in Africa. Because I, I was worried about something. I was afraid that your story was going to get lost. What I realized in that moment is for some reason God entrusted something to me. And so I felt this responsibility to tell the story, and I did, because it's your story. It's about what you did. How you live together, black and white, in the community of reconciliation. Well, guess what happened? The book ended up in the bookstore at Tombow Airport. And you guys started buying it and started getting it in the country. And all of a sudden, things got really ugly. Because people didn't want that book in this country. As a matter of fact, those books that are sitting out there, that until last year, was considered seditious material and contraband and needed to be confiscated. That's how difficult this journey has been for me. In 2013, I was told by friends over here, don't come back, you're going to get arrested. I thought they were exaggerating until later that year, one of the young men that actually grew up at the community and his friend came to the gravesite where my friends were buried and they both got arrested and spent a week in Escadini police station. And the whole time they're there, they were interrogated and they were asked two questions. Where's Bob Scott and where are those books? Well, until November of last year, I never thought I'd be back here. I thought that maybe that was the end of the story, that writing the book was the last thing God would ask me to do about Zimbabwe. So I just let go of it. I let go of this thing that, that I'd been carrying for so long. In November of last year, at the beginning of the month, I started getting this strange sense that there was a transition coming. And I wrote a blog that I posted on November 13th called Transitions. I wake up the next morning and what greets me in the news? Zimbabwe is going through the most significant transition in 37 years. And what do I see on the screen of my computer? 
black Zimbabweans and white Zimbabweans and end the bellies and shown us. And guess what? Nobody cares what your skin color is and nobody cares what tribe you're from. The only thing that you want is to be one. I remember sitting there in that moment going, I hope Zimbabwe's leaders see this because these people are declaring with their actions what they want. They're tired of conflict. They want to heal. They're tired of tribalism. They're tired of racism. They're tired of all the isms. They want to be one. They want to be God's people. And I wept for you. And I kept wondering, God, does this mean anything for me? Probably not. Well, in December, somebody calls me on the phone and they say, Bob, you know you got to go back to Zimbabwe. And I said, well, okay. I'm not sure, though. And they said, well, what would it take for you to go? And I said, I need somebody to invite me. I need to know that somebody over there thinks that what I've been carrying for 30 years is important. And the next morning I wake up, and there's an email from a guy from Foundations for Farming who says to me, Bob, we're farmers, but this year we feel like God's talking about peace and reconciliation. We need you to come and tell your story. And I sat there and I wept. I went, oh my God, I got to go back. This is what God told me. He said, I need you to go back. And I need you to put a mirror in front of them. And I need to show them who they once were and who they're going to be again. You see, I'm just merely the keeper of your story. But I need you to know something. God's here to heal this country. You know that number 30 up there? It was almost 30 years to the day that that transition happened that my friends died. I've been carrying this story about you for 30 years. God's back. He is offering you something he offered you 30 years ago. And my question to you is, will you embrace it this time? Will you heal your nation? Because the truth of it is the government's not going to heal you. You know who the peacemakers are? You. This is about you and your neighbor. There's a whole part of this country down there that needs you from up here to go down there and hug them. For you to go down there and say, brother, I feel your pain. I know what happened. I'm hurting for you. I I know I'm probably going over my time here. I just want to tell one quick story. I gave a speech in the beginning of March at this conference. One of your dear brothers here, Nigel Shankara, says to me, Bob, you need to come meet someone. And he takes me to meet one of the commissioners at your National Peace and Reconciliation Commission. That relationship ends up where I have to go and actually appear before the whole commission. And I am terrified. Because you got to remember, for 30 years, nobody wanted me to tell this story. And they told me if I did tell this story and I got caught, they were going to throw me in jail. So I'm scared. And I go to the ninth floor of this building, and they're there all sitting there, and I tell my story. And I hand out my book, and I look over, and the chairman is weeping. And I'm confused as to what God's doing. 
And he stands up and looks at all the other commissioners and he said, brothers and sisters, you all have to read this book. And the reason is, is what Bob Scott has written in here is the truth. This is the truth about Zimbabwe. And the reason I know, Bob, is 30 years ago, I was at the funeral of your friends. And I had this chill go through me and I went, oh my God, there it is again, 30 years. 30 years ago in the foreknowledge of God, he set up this moment. And here's where it even gets more amazing. He looked at me and he said, Bob, can I ask you for your permission to put your book into the national record of our country? Can you imagine? I mean, do you understand that me standing here right now is a miracle? Despite all the powers of darkness, all hell trying to take this country down, God is here to heal you. And I'm here to remind you that he's here to heal you. Just two days ago, the commissioners asked me, this is unbelievable. They said, Bob, would you take the role of being a peace ambassador for the nation of Zimbabwe? Is God not great? I don't even know where to go from here. <laughs> All I can tell you folks is that God wants to heal. I told Brother Tom this. I think you need to understand something. There's people here in this church who need to tell their stories and you need to listen. This is Africa. We tell stories. And that's how we heal. And it's time. Now is the time. We need to create a safe space in this place, in God's house, to tell our stories. And then we need to look at each other in the eyes and say the three most powerful words in the English language, which is, I am sorry. I'm so sorry. We need to heal. We need to heal here. And I believe there's a time coming where I think God's going to do something special here because I think that even within the body of Christ, there's so much pain. And I just pray for all of you that you'll reach out to each other and you embrace each other in the pain. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.